0: So our first reading this morning from the Bible comes from John chapter 15 beginning at verse 18 through to verse 25. So John 15 from verse 18. If the world hates you keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world it would love you as its own. As it is you do not belong to the world but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father but this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason.
1: Our second reading this morning comes from James chapter 1, and I'm reading verses 1 to 18. So James 1, from verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 trials scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. The sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. of all he created this is the word of the lord thanks be to god
2: good morning everyone my name's andrew Vella. i have a bit of a sore throat today i'm sorry about the the audio i'm going to pray heavenly father we thank you that you are a good god Please be with me and with us as we think about and look at your word. I pray, Lord, that we would trust in you. And this faith that we have in you will be demonstrated in our lives as we go through trials and temptations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I talk about background and context of the letter of James, Ken, I indulge you to take part in this hypothetical with me. Pretend you have to move to Sydney next week. And then after you move, you hear that at St. Matt's we take on a whole bunch of Ukrainian refugees who have fleeing the war. A few months later, you hear stories about what's going on still at St. Matt's. How there's been, uh, there's been a few business owners who have employed these Ukrainian refugees so they get jobs. And that St. Matt's is creating community spaces for them to get together in. Later, you hear that the small business owners who've employed these refugees aren't giving them minimum wage because they claim they're not up to skill. And that the community spaces that Matz has made, it's really just a section off bit of a hall that only they are allowed to sit on and it's the furthest back corner. And when we do communion and when we have morning tea, there's the Australian line and the everyone else line. And not only that, Within the refugee community, there's tensions. Some have landed on their feet and gotten good employment. Their qualifications have transferred easily across to Australia. Others who were quite well off in their home country are now cleaning toilets at South Point and they're bickering amongst each other. They're talking smack behind their backs because if they were back home, the roles would have been reversed. Now, pretend you hear all this is going on in this church. So what do you do? You open up your email, you type in office at stmatswaniasa.org.au. You stare at the screen. What are you going to say? What will you write? What would your tone be? You know what I would say? Dear St. Matts. cut it out. Come on, guys, this church is known for its knowledge of the Bible. We pride ourselves with our biblical teaching, but your behaviour is unchristian. This is not what we do as Christians. We hold to certain things that should be shown in our behaviour to those in need. Now, in me saying something like that, I've made a few assumptions. I'm assuming that Christian belief isn't just an intellect thing. It's a live thing, one that impacts your behaviour. It's one thing to read some heavy systematic theology textbook, it's another to show mercy because God has shown you grace. And one of those is more Christian than the other. So now that hypothetical isn't exactly what's going on with James and who he's writing to but there is some overlap there's a little bit of conjecture but James is probably the brother of Jesus and he was the leader of the Jerusalem church and in this letter he's writing to Jewish Christians who had fled Jerusalem due to persecution do you remember Stephen who got killed in Acts 8 after that lots of Christians fled the city And Christians weren't seen to be friendly with the Jews at this time. In Acts 17, Paul was hunted from Thessalonica to Berea, some 70 kilometers on foot, because they didn't like his message. In Acts 23, 40 people vowed not to eat until they've killed Paul. So in this time... Everyday Christians were spreading outwards from Jerusalem, taking their family and business elsewhere. And where they went, they were still worshipping Jesus. Some people landed on their feet and became wealthy. Some people found employment under other Christians. But things were not equal. There was grumbling between Christians. There was tension between the rich and the poor. There was sickness and slander and injustice going on, not to mention external pressures making life hard for the Christians. And James writes into a situation like this. And he's not the kind and sympathetic person you might think he would be. Instead, he tells them to grow up. Be mature in Christ. Take responsibility for your faith and seek wisdom, real wisdom and dependence on God. He wants them to take a long, hard look at themselves and to reorientate their thinking around God and to consider how they might love those around them. It's a bit of tough love, for life is hard and unfair and soft words might not work in this situation. And in the letter of James, there is this tension between internal belief and external action. James doesn't want you to just have good theology like the devil, but he wants you to behave in a certain way, that your faith can be shown in your actions. Do you read the Bible and pray? Do you do good deeds to those around you? Is a question like that enforcing legalism? As Christians, we're called to something, to a new way of life, not just to a set of philosophical ideas. We aren't to be like the Thessalonians that Paul writes to, who once they got saved, they sat around waiting for the Lord to return. That's not what we're called for. We are saved and we are to do things. There's the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, but that's perhaps the church's mission, which... We are to go and make disciples of all nations, which we can and should be a part of, but there's more to that. We are told to live in a certain way. And this may make us uneasy, maybe because we're Australians, because we like the bare minimum. What is the minimum I need to pass this test? What's the minimum I need to meet a building standard? What's the minimum I have to believe to be a Christian? And what if I don't do certain practices? Aren't I still saved by faith? Do I have to get baptised to be a real Christian? What about the thief on the cross? He didn't get baptised, did he? The thief on the cross is always the good exception. And he does show us that it, all it takes is trust in Jesus to be saved. But James wasn't writing to people being crucified next to Jesus. And neither are you. James was writing to Christians free from crucifixion, who have longer life expectancy and more resources and less holes in their hands and feet, enable them to do good works. So, yes, we are saved by grace and not works. I don't know if you remember Ephesians 2 from two weeks ago. There is this progression. We were dead. We were made alive. And there are good works for us to do. Once we are saved, we behave in a certain way. We are called to a new life, to put away old habits and to take on new ones. That is the mature Christian life that James is calling his readers to press into. But this book isn't only about us trying harder. You'll see that there's grace in the message of James. He helps us to reorientate our views of God, to depend on him and not ourselves. This new perspective will hopefully see God in a better light, seeing that he is a good father who listens to his children and gives them good gifts. That is the mature Christian life that James is calling his readers to press into. So as we kick off this letter, we see that James wastes very little time in getting started. And in this passage, his introduction, it may seem like he's skipping around a bit. It's kind of the executive summary. For most of the topics touched on in this talk, he will circle back later. Things like wisdom and testing and wealth, they're all come back to. But the first thing he jumps into are trials and temptations. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, trials and temptations. For these two things are universal to all Christians. Trials are things that are external to us, that happen to us, of which we're sometimes not in control of. And at the start of this letter, James doesn't give us specifics, but here he's talking about trials that are various. And when we face these trials, James has this crazy notion that we should consider it pure joy. Joy in trials. The things that make trials trials is that they are trying. They are hard. They are uncomfortable. But James wants us to think of them as something joyful. This is one of the many topsy-turvy things James will have to say in his letter like a wisdom letter, like a proverb. He goes on to say why we are to consider this. Because trials, the hard circumstances that we encounter, in the end make us mature. Trials are like a visit to the gym. Not that I've ever been to the gym, but I hear that you sweat and struggle and get worn out, and in the end, after a few visits, You get stronger over time. You can endure more. You can lift more. You can take on something more heavy. I don't think the goal of going to the gym is so that you can go back again the next day. I think the goal is to be stronger and healthier outside of the gym. We should notice that James doesn't say we should have joy for the trial, but to consider the trial as joy because it has an end goal. It is the future aspect of trials that we are to consider. For trials help us grow in the faith and to trust in God more. And James gives us one helpful thing we can do when experiencing trials we are to ask God for wisdom. We can be disorientated in life when it throws us some curveballs, we don't know what to do or think. I take ages to make decisions on the best of days, but when there's a crisis going on, with what decisions and plans do I have to make, I can get paralysed. What's the best thing to do? What's the most effective or strategic thing in this moment? What can I say to someone in this circumstance? I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but James says we are to ask God for wisdom and he will give us wisdom without finding fault, without holding a grudge against us for asking him. We don't bother God when we pray to him. But there's a hard part in this passage about those who doubt. Who does James have in mind here? I think it's not to do with the strength of someone's faith, who the doubter is, but the person who is double-minded, someone who is taking a bet both ways. They try this God thing and then they try something else, another God, crystals, astrology, their own resources. They seek out worldly wisdom and God wisdom. They have a foot in two worlds or on two skateboards. They're unstable. They need to pick a lane and stay in it. Will God carry them through their trials or are they to use their own resources to help them through? Does God really care about our situation or is he really indifferent to us? And we need wisdom from God to answer these questions. For what we think about God will either help us in trials or bring us to ruin. Trials will show if we really trust only in God or in something else. Earlier this week I had coffee with someone and they were talking about a whole heap of things that have happened to them in their life and the years of therapy that they have had. And they said... If it wasn't for what they had gone through, they would be a much shallower person. Trials are hard and we need to prepare for them because if you aren't going through one now, just wait. One will come. James says not to go looking for them, but when they come, consider them joy because they will mature you. It is the strong winds and the rough storms that make an oak tree have deep roots. Trials are things external to us, which also include our wealth. And in verses 9 to 11, James talks specifically about how we are to think about our station in life. Here again is a topsy-turvy way of looking at things. He says, those who are humble should take pride in their high position. Those who are wealthy should take pride in their humiliation. Now, in what categories is James talking about here? As on the face of it, it seems James has muddled his words up. In what way are the poor in high position? And in what way are the rich in humble circumstances? I think this mindset, whether being humbled or humiliated, is looked at through the lens of the gospel. Those who are poor in Christ need to remember that they have incomparable riches with Christ. They are part of the royal priesthood. They have an inheritance with God that will not be taken away from them, where moths and rust will not destroy their wealth. But those who are wealthy and in Christ which is probably most of us here, need to remember that our wealth is only temporary, that we are in Christ not because of our riches. Rich people may feel a sense of security, but those in Christ need to remember they are identifying with a crucified Christ. They are on the team that got crucified by the government, that they believe in the foolishness of the cross. Our minds may wonder, thinking that if we just had a little bit more money, things would be easier, things would be more enjoyable, trials and temptations would be less, if only we had a little bit more. John Rockefeller, one of the most richest men alive in the early 20th century, he was asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And his response was as honest as anyone. He said... Just a little bit more. Wealth will not give the security we need. In fact, it's all fleeting. Do you like Jackson Pollock? It's a mess, splatters of paint, and for some reason it's worth millions, right? Something about the act of creation is more important than the result of the creation, something like that. This one is called Untitled 1950. In 2007, it was sold for $17 million. It's a fake. That's a bit embarrassing, right? You don't want to be that rich guy with some worthless splatter pattern on your wall. Riches will fade. Investments are like that. There was a global financial crisis. Now we're worried about inflation. Money goes up, money goes down. It's not stable, it doesn't last. It's like flowers. When I used to work at ANU, on the way home, on the 6th of every month, I would buy Hannah flowers. Now, there's one IGA between Waniasa and Canberra and they don't sell flowers. So Hannah's been a bit short, really. But the point, The point is, I had to buy flowers every month because they don't last. They die. And everything we own is like that. It's all going to end on the rubbish dump. Most of the stuff we have might not even last five years. How many times have you already upgraded your phone? How many cars have you had? How many jeans have you gone through? Even your house will turn to dust one day. I remember once talking to a lady who had to clean up her deceased mother's estate. She put all the stuff in the back of a trailer, took it to the tip, and she said, it all ends up there in the end. Wealth is just like flowers. We can't trust in it for ultimate security. It eventually fades. But in verse 12, it tells us what doesn't fade. What lasts is the crown of life, which is given to the one who stands the test. This is the goal. This is where we are heading. As we face trials, we seek God's wisdom. As we persevere till the end, where we will be given life, just as he has promised us. How strong we believe will be based on how strong we trust in who God is. And James goes on to say, not only do we face trials, external circumstances that happen to us, but also we face temptations, which comes from within. We may feel like some situations and circumstances hem us in. They control us and God's to blame. But James says, when it comes to sin, we only have ourselves to blame. God is not attracted to sin. It's not his jam. And because God's not into sin, we can trust that he's not trying to trip us up. It's our desires that drag us away. It comes from within. And here James points out a progression. When tempted, a de- desire from within wells up. We're enticed. It gives birth to sin. And in its adult form, that is death desire deception disobedience death we are both agents and victims of our desires we have to take personal responsibility for our sin in the end we can't blame society our culture our genetics it is us behaving in a certain way in a certain circumstance and there is a warning here Sin leads to death. This is the opposite of the crown of life that those who make it through the trials receive. The end result of sin isn't life, it's death. But the good news is God. We must not be deceived about who God is. We may change, but God doesn't. He keeps his promises. God isn't neutral on the matter of us and sin. He doesn't entice us to sin and hope that we will fail. When we face trials and temptations, remember who God is. Look beyond the immediate and live in faith that God is God and that he is good. And as we live this way, confident that we know that God is good, our faith will be shown through trials and temptations. We'll get to Abraham in chapter 2. But when he was tested, faced with the sacrifice of his only son, Abraham trusted God, believing that he could raise the dead. And so Abraham's faith was shown to be true. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when faced with holding on to their views or to submit to the ruling government's views, they chose to follow God. They weren't threatened with loss of job, but loss of life. And even then, when they stood up to this pagan king, they said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They did not know they were going to be saved. But what they did know was that God was good, and in the face of a hard trial, they weren't going to change their minds. And they were human, just like you and me. A hundred years after this letter was written, Ignatius would be the first Christian thrown to the lions because he said Christ was Lord. And still in the face of fierce lines, even though there was the threat of your life being cut short for following Jesus, the Christian movement still grew for people believed that God was worth following even through hard times, even through death. In England, under Queen Mary... One of the first things she did was to arrest Latimer, Ridley and Cranmer. They were tried for treason because these prominent men held to Protestant beliefs and they knew this was coming. They had the opportunity to flee to Europe but they stayed to face the Queen and at their trial they spoke strongly against the Roman Church. On the 16th of October, today, 1555, Latimer and Ridley were burned together. Ridley prayed, O Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most hearty thanks, that thou hast caused me to be a professor of thee, even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England, and deliver it from her enemies. The flames didn't go in Ridley's favor. It's England. It's windy. It's damp takes a while for wood to burn. As Latimer, he was covered in flames and Ridley wasn't, he turns to him and says, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. Thomas Cramer was there. He was made to watch because a year later he would also be burned. Our church tradition still follows in their legacy. They all trusted in the crown of life which God had promised because even though the pressure was huge, they knew God was bigger and more precious to hold on to. James can be a hard book. I found that when I was reading it. There's much we need to do. Ask God for wisdom, navigate the trials and temptations, take responsibility for our sin, but don't miss God. He is a giver. God will give us wisdom if we ask. God will keep his promise and he will give us the crown of life. God gives us gifts from above. He chose to give us new birth in his son, Jesus Christ. God is not against us, but for us. Trials and temptations are hard. It's a simple, realistic picture of life that we will face them. But when we do, remember God because what we think about Him will change the way we see our trials, our wealth, and our sin. I'll pray. Heavenly Father. Help us to remain fixed on you, knowing that you are a good God who is not against us, but for us. May we seek wisdom from you when facing various trials. We thank you for the opportunity to persevere with you through trials, knowing that it will strengthen our faith, and through your help, we will receive what you have promised us, the crown of life. Help us not to trust in our wealth, but to trust in the cross where your son died for us and brought us into your royal family. Lord, our hearts apart from you get deceived and are dragged away by sin. Help us to stand firm, trusting in you, who grants wisdom to all who ask, who does not change, and he keeps his promises. Amen.